So we are, um, for those of you here for the very first time, a couple of months ago we launched into this study on the book of Philippians. And it was really a, a picture of a verse-by-verse kind of journey through Paul's kind of call and challenge to this group of young believers in Philippi to really live as a community that focused on a couple of things, that focused around humility, living and understanding that this is not about me, and, and living as a community that was about unity. Like, if we can live together, and even though we don't agree on everything, we can live together and be unified in our mission, we become an effective tool to share the gospel with the world. Well, Paul spent the first two chapters, and we kind of unpacked these piece by piece by piece, really pushing on these things of humility, humility and unity, And we've since, uh, a couple of weeks ago, shifted into chapter 3 where Paul begins to slowly wrap up his call to the Philippians and he changes gears a little bit. He moves away from talking about the church and humility and unity and life together to kind of exploring a deep theological foundation by which the Philippians could begin to build their life. And I mentioned last week that we have to understand that that good theological teaching was really hard to find back in the early first century. It wasn't like you could just turn on your computer or or on the TV or or open your Bible and find good theology. I mean, those things didn't exist. And so good teaching was hard to find. And and kind of the, the, the reverse of that, which is true also, which is because good teaching was hard to find, bad teaching was very prevalent. And so heresy was a big struggle. In fact, a lot of Paul's letters were written to combat heresy that was going around the early church. And the strongest kind of voice out there, heretical voice out there, was the one that said, you can earn your way or you can walk or put your effort into something that will then grant you favor with God. And so the Philippians were facing a teaching from a group of people that were saying, listen, if you want to believe in Jesus, not only do you have to have faith in him, but you've got to be willing to keep all the other Jewish Old Testament laws as well. You've got to be able to keep the food rituals and circumcision rituals and all those things. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You've got to follow Jesus and work for God's favor and merit. And chapter 3 of Philippians is Paul basically saying, it's Jesus and nothing else. Because if anybody had the ability to sort of religiously earn or work their way towards God's favor and acceptance, it would be me is what Paul's saying. It would be me. But I fell so short. So where we picked up for the past few weeks is Paul coming on the tail end of this sort of, there's nothing that you can do. No confidence in your own ability, your own strength will ever earn or merit God's favor or God's love. Trust me. If anyone was perfectly religious, it was me. And I have failed. But I have found a few things along the way. One, I found that knowing Christ and being found in him is greater than anything else I thought I had. And that's where we were the past two weeks. Philippians 3, 7 through 11, and those first two pieces. What does it mean to know Christ? This sort of understanding that loss is gain and personal intimacy and the lordship of Christ, all those things wrapped up into it. Last week, we talked about being found in Christ, understanding that we are totally and utterly lost and that being found is not something that we can do on our own. And we explored those two things. Well, this week, we're going to explore a third principle that comes out of 7 through 11, and that is sharing in Christ. So Paul's saying these three things are greater than anything else I could ever put my confidence in, and that's knowing Christ and being found in Christ and sharing in Christ. So if you've got your Bible, all that to catch up to speed to chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. You should, if you've been here for a while, be really familiar with it. We've read it every week for the past few weeks. 
Well, we are going to finish up those last two verses uh, today, and I'm excited about it. So let's go ahead and turn there. If you've got it, if you brought your Bible, excellent. If you didn't bring it, there should be one right there in front of you. I always want you to use it because I want you to know I'm not making this stuff up. It doesn't matter to me. If you ever hear one thing I say, I want you to encounter God's Word, and I want that to change you. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. And as we do, we're going to back up a few verses so that you can hear it in context. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll open God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for this journey you've put us on. Uh, verse by verse, walk the book of Philippians. Lord, it's taken us 13 weeks to make it halfway through, but it's so powerfully rich. And so, Lord, I pray that what we pay attention to today is um, we, we be able to look intently into your word and see where you are calling us into a deep relationship of obedience with you. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us. We know that your word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. God, that it is true and it is right. So, Father, open our hearts to your word. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to prepare you to meet with him, to to prepare your heart and teach you something new this morning. Just whisper that to the Lord. God, prepare me and teach me this morning. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. We do this every week. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. God, we ask that as we open your word, you would penetrate our hearts, teaching us truth, and helping us discover what it means to truly share in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's back up to 3, 4, okay, and we'll kind of read down through 11. So this is Philippians chapter 3 and 4, and Paul's kind of expressing this fact like he's basically saying, you can't do anything to earn God's merit, favor, or love. Those people that are coming in and telling you that you need to be circumcised or you need to obey all the Jewish law, he goes, they don't understand that following Christ is only about grace. It's about what God could do for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And he says this, I myself have reasons to put such confidence in the flesh. Okay, verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But, verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. We're going to be here today in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So, Paul is saying, I had it all lined up, from my birthright to my strongholds to my savings to my ability. I was passionate, I was religious, and I could do it. But I have discovered that if anybody had the ability to put confidence in themselves, it was me. But I still fell short. And here's what I discovered, that whatever the world told me was to my profit, whatever the world said, hey, Paul, you can do, you've got the skill set, you've got the ability, whatever the world said I could accomplish... I take all those things and I consider them a loss. What is more, I consider every single thing I have a loss compared to what? The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ 
and being found in him. That's where Paul kind of says everything boils down to knowing Jesus and be found in him, where we spent the first two weeks. Well, today we're going to jump to that sort of conclusion part where he says this, I, Paul, want to know Christ, right? I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and though somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So we've explored those first two principles. Well, what does it really mean when I talk about sharing in Christ? Now, you've got to understand what I'm saying, or really what I'm not saying, before we kind of move forward into it. I'm not talking about sharing Christ, which is sort of that classic understanding of evangelism, where you share Christ with someone. So you sit down with someone, you tell them about Jesus, you're sharing Christ with them. I actually want you to pay attention to that little preposition in, sharing in Christ, because when we share in something, we participate in it. And if you look at those verses, that word in makes an appearance in a couple of really powerful places. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There's a participatory element of sharing in Christ. We've been invited to know him, we've been found in him, and now Paul's telling this group of gathered believers in Philippi that they have the ability to share in Christ. And there's a few things that we see in these verses that I want you to pay attention to. And Paul kind of breaks them out really easily for us to see. And the first is this idea of the power of the resurrection. So Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to share in Christ and the power of the resurrection. I started thinking about this and, and I started trying to grapple with the idea of the resurrection because there is no other single, let me put it this way, the, the resurrection is the single greatest event in all of human history. The resurrection is the single greatest event in all of human history. Everything that we believe in our Christian life is wrapped up in the reality of the resurrection. As Paul himself, Paul himself says, if the resurrection did not happen, everything that we believe is in vain. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen, my entire life, everything that I'm about is a complete and utter lie and a joke. So the resurrection is the single greatest event in all of human history. Now the cross, the cross is where Jesus takes on the sin of the world. The cross is the expression of God's extravagant love. But the resurrection is the expression of God's incredible power. See, through the cross, Jesus bore the sin of all humanity. But through the resurrection, God conquers death and brings life. Without the resurrection, the cross is just a crazy man saying he's God, dying on a Roman instrument of death. But when coupled with the resurrection... The crucifixion and resurrection become the single greatest moment in all of human history. And Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So what happens with the resurrection? Well, what happens with the resurrection is that we go from death to life. The resurrection theologically was Jesus dying for the sinful kind of uh, burden of humanity. And the resurrection is God conquering death and giving life through the death of Christ. So the resurrection brings life from death. The power of the resurrection is that we no longer have to be mastered by the sinful nature of our humanity, by the sin that runs through us, but that we have been given victory over that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, oftentimes, we think that that means when I die. So when I die, the resurrection is the promise that I now have eternal life if I believe in Jesus Christ because he was raised from the dead. And that begins on the day that I die. But the reality is eternal life begins today. 
that we have been given victory over the sin in our life at this moment. What that means is that I can claim victory in my life over the sin and the struggle and the brokenness today, that I can confess and repent and live in the newness of Christ today. The power of the resurrection is that we share in the victory that Christ had over death. Now, it doesn't sound like much. Well, maybe it does sound like much, but maybe it doesn't mean much. But it's incredibly profound and powerful because we are totally sinful. But the Bible teaches us that we don't have to live or obey that sin nature. I want you to hear what Paul says in Romans. Listen to this. This is how Paul explains in the book of Romans chapter 6. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can no longer die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, we count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. And therefore, we do not let sin reign in our mortal body so that we obey its evil desires. Paul says in Romans, he says this, Jesus died once and for all, and God raised him from the dead, and and he can no longer die again. Death doesn't have mastery over him. In the same way, we count ourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus, so that Sin doesn't reign in our mortal bodies. It doesn't have victory over me. I don't have to obey it. And I find this powerful because we tend to think that sin is something we're going to always battle and always struggle with, and so we just sort of give in to those things that are hard. And we don't claim victory that we have in Christ over our sinful nature, that we can say through Jesus, I can confess and repent and walk away from this garbage in my life, and it doesn't have to own me because I am no longer slave to that, but instead I am slave to Jesus Christ, as we talked about in James. But Paul's telling this church in Philippi is, listen, sin no longer runs your life. You no longer have to obey its desires. You have been given power and victory in Jesus. Now, we don't talk about that a whole lot in our church life today, you know, this sort of victorious, powerful Christian life that gives us victory over sin because we tend to think that sin isn't really all that bad. That it's just something we struggle with and deal with. But sin is death. And the power of the resurrection takes us from life to death. And so he's looking at this church saying, listen, claim power over the sin in your life. And that's an incredible word for us. Because we no longer have to continue to let our struggles beat us down. We can claim victory. That God has given us victory in Christ over those things. We don't have to obey it. You don't have to look in the mirror and see the lie anymore that you can claim victory in Jesus. You don't have to sweep in those dark recesses of your heart that no one else knows about, the things that you've hidden there and have done there that you've never told another soul. Those don't own you because you've been given victory in Jesus Christ. That's the power of the resurrection. It's the power of the resurrection. It's all right, it's Burke Lewis, no big deal. So Paul says, I want to share in that victory, that resurrection power. So listen to what he goes on to say. He also says... Not only do we have power in the resurrection, but we have fellowship in Christ's sufferings. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. In order to understand this idea of fellowship and sharing in sufferings, we have to go back a few verses to what we did kind of back in week four or three when we were in Philippians chapter one. And I want to read this verse to you because it's, uh, it kind of speaks to where we are. Philippians 1, 29-ish, I think. How about that? Maybe. Philippians 1.29 says this. Paul's telling this church, and he's telling these gathered believers, he says, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, right, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. 
So Paul says, church, listen, it's been given to you, granted to you, not only to believe, but to suffer for Christ. Here's the point I want to make. Both faith and suffering are gifts from God. Now, it's not something we like to think about, but it's true. Both faith and suffering are gifts for God. It has been granted to you, not only the ability to believe on him or in him, but to suffer for him. Now, first thing we've got to understand there is that faith is a gift. Oftentimes we think that faith or the ability to believe or trust in God is something that we have to muster up on our own energy and jump some kind of giant blind kind of a canyon in order to get to the existence of God. And I've got to muster up my faith and my ability to trust in God. But if you really read scripture, faith is a gift. It's given to us. It's not something that we do. It means that God takes in the initiative with humanity and he gives us the ability to believe. So faith has been given to you. It's a gift. It means you will never discover your way to God. God reveals himself to us. John 6.44 kind of says it best where Jesus says, No one comes to me, Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws them. Meaning it's God who does the work, God who does the initiative, God who brings. So faith is a gift. It is given to us. But on top of that, suffering is a gift. Because not only has it been granted to them to believe, but it's been granted to them to suffer for him. Now, most of us do not like that statement at all. Because that doesn't seem like much of a gift, right? I don't want the gift to suffer, to struggle, to be pain, to be in pain. That doesn't sound like much of a gift. And it's not that the struggle and suffer and pain is the gift. It's the result of it. Remember back, well, those of you that used to come for, been coming for a while, you remember we, we did this kind of walk in the book of James. Remember in James chapter 1, 2, and 3 where James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for we know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance leads to maturity and completeness. Remember that? James takes a different approach. He actually says it's not the pain and suffering that are good, but it's what comes from it. It's the opportunity for maturity and completeness. It's perseverance. It's growth. The thing about me, and I'm sure you might be like me, and that's this. I I don't really care much about perseverance and maturity and growth and character. I just want God to take away my hurt. Like, most of us don't think in terms of saying, okay, God, I'm willing to walk through these struggles because I will know you and I will mature in you and I want to see you as you grow me through these financial or through these relationships or through these whatever difficulties. Most of us are just saying, God, take this from me. It hurts and I hate it and I want relief now and I want God to free me from my pain. But what James says is that when we face those painful struggles, those trials, consider it joy. And he's not saying just be happy or look on the bright side. It's all going to be okay. He's not saying, hey, take a few Jesus-flavored lemons and make some lemonade because it's all going to work out. He doesn't say that at all. What he's saying is find joy. And joy and happiness, as we talked about, are completely different things. Because when pain is there, it really hurts. It's not good. It's painful. It's awful. We don't cover it up and pretend it's not there. That real emotion is true. But in the middle of all that real emotion and struggle and hurt is the opportunity to know and grow and have maturity in Christ. This is what Paul's saying when he says, 
fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, that there's an opportunity for maturity when you suffer. Now imagine that you're part of this little Philippian church where every day you wake up, you realize that today might be the day that I die because I believe in Jesus. And not like, I mean like die, like be killed, murdered, persecuted, because you claim faith in Jesus Christ. You know what James says? Consider it joy when you face those trials. You know what Paul says? There's a fellowship in sharing in his sufferings because you can become more like him as you mature and grow. But not only that, that word fellowship is really important. There's a fellowship in sharing and sufferings. Have you ever suffered with someone, like really walked through deep, hard pain with them? There's an intimacy that's connected and created in there. When my dad died when I was 23, my brother was 21, um, we were, I just finished college. My brother had, was wrapping up college, and he died the early part of the summer. And we left and basically spent the whole summer. I was living in Lubbock at the time. spent the whole summer in, in Austin where my dad had a construction business, a little residential home company that he ran. My brother and I spent the summer trying to close that business. There's 23, 21-year-old kids trying to close the jobs he had going and try and cook the books and do all the things that it took to make this work because we knew that if we did, mom would have nothing. Filed for bankruptcy, all kinds of things that were outstanding. And we worked all summer trying to make that happen. 16, 17, 18, 20 hours a day trying to labor through that. In the middle of trying to close all that, we were grieving deeply that we just lost our dad. No one knew what that was like for us. But it was something that he and I intimately shared together. And to this day, no matter what happens in our relationship, we have this intimacy of knowing we walk through some of the most painful and difficulties of suffering together. And there was an intimacy in knowing that nobody else knows what I was feeling except him in some of those moments. Have you ever had that with someone? Where you walk through maybe a, a loss of someone you loved or a tragedy or just a difficult time. Or, or you and your husband or wife walk through a period in your life where it was so hard and so painful that no one knows the connection now that you all have. What Paul is explaining to these Philippians is that there's a fellowship. As we mature and grow and suffer with Christ, there's a fellowship with Christ that we have because we shared in the sufferings that he had. And there's a fellowship that you'll have with each other. When we share in the suffering of Christ, we are participating in what Christ went through. And there's an intimacy there, and there's a depth, and there's a maturity there. And I'm not just talking about suffering like, oh, so I'm being persecuted, but really deep kind of loneliness, struggle, hurt. I mean, Christ was abandoned by his friends, denied by his closest, and murdered. The things that he went through in his humanity are things that you and I have experienced on some level. Loneliness, brokenness, hurt, fear, frustration. Christ walked through all those things. And there's a fellowship in knowing that. So Paul says when we share, right, we're sharing in this sort of resurrection, new life, power, victory over sin. Claim it. And this, this sort of maturity and growth that comes from knowing that suffering is a gift. It's an opportunity to know Christ more. And not only that, but we have this fellowship with him and the others that we walk through that's indescribable, and we share in that. And then finally, all those things lead to really this last sentence for me. And we'll wrap up. He says this, I want to know Christ, the power of resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, listen to this, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Be sharing in these things, sharing in the resurrection power and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
What does that mean? What does it mean to become like Jesus in his death? You know, I thought a lot about this because I think on some level it's very kind of cool in our Christian subculture to say I want to be like Jesus, right? And really we want to be like Jesus, but we don't want to be like the part of Jesus that's like good to be like. Well, I want to be like the huggy kind of beard growing, love all the people, walk around the countryside, everybody thinks I'm really nice and moral kind of Jesus, right? Like everybody wants to be like Jesus that way. But there's a deeper, more obedient, or kind of more obedient picture of Jesus that we don't really know what to do with. And that's the part of Jesus that went to the cross and died for the glory of God alone. There's that moment of Jesus when he takes two of his closest friends and he's about to be betrayed, handed over to an angry mob, sold out by a guy who he spent three years of his life with. And he takes these two guys and he goes into this garden and he says, will you pray with me because the hour is near. And he looks at these guys who he loved dearly and he basically says, I need you right now more than ever. Pray with me. And he leaves them and he goes off before the Father and he falls on his knees and he says, God, if there is any other way, Father, if there is any other way to take away what is about to happen to me because Jesus in all of his infinite kind of godliness knows what's about to unfold, that he's going to be betrayed and beaten and turned on and crucified. And he basically says, Father, if there is any other way to take this cup, please do. But not my will, but your will be done. He goes back and finds his friends asleep. Wakes him up again. Please pray with me. Goes back, falls on his knees. The Bible tells us there was so much anxiety in Jesus' cry and prayer that literally he was sweating droplets of blood. And he said, God, if there's any other way, Father, is there any way for you to take this from me? But not your will, not my will, but your will be done. In Jesus' death was an obedience that is beyond my comprehension. Paul's saying that that knowing Christ, being found in Christ, sharing in Christ, and the resurrection power and the fellowship of his sufferings leads us to a place where we would say, Jesus, Father, I want to be like you, even to the point of obedience over everything, over me, over my comfort, over my desire, because in your death, you laid it down for the obedience of the Father. Becoming like him in his death. And what Paul's saying is to this little Philippian, can you see how powerful this would be for this little gathered church? Knowing every day they're living in extreme poverty. Knowing every day was a day they may die for Jesus. For them to hear, listen, even if it costs you everything, be like Jesus. Obedient, faithful to his death. Now you and I, we most likely will never face death for our belief in Jesus. But we can certainly die to ourselves. And we can certainly live in obedience. To say, Jesus, I want what you want, not what I want. I want to be so like you that even in those moments of your death, the antagonizing kind of, I want what your will is, Father. That I want to be like that. I don't want what I want. I want what you want. And I want to be like Jesus when it's hard to be like Jesus. And then Paul wraps it up by saying, and those somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. And it's not a, a proclamation of doubter. It's actually a proclamation of mystery. And God, somehow through all this, that I might be with you that I might be with you, that through knowing you and being found in you and sharing in you, that when all this is over, not only do I have this abundant life here, when all this is over, I will stand in your glorious presence where there are no more tears, where there is no more brokenness, and I will stand in the presence of the God that I was created to know. Now this becomes a theological foundation that Paul lays for the Philippians. Everything gets measured up against this. 
This is who he says Jesus is, knowing him, being found in him, and sharing in him. And I love the fact that we're about to celebrate communion or share communion as we wrap this up. Because ultimately, this table is the perfect and amazing expression of all that we've talked about. That through this table is not some kind of church kind of habit or ritual. But this is the expression, the literal expression of God's love poured out. And the promise of his great power through the resurrection. And that when we do this as a church, we're proclaiming something very real. That God, you are Lord over my life and that I want to know you and that I can never earn my way to find your favor. But I was lost and you have found me. And I have the privilege of now sharing in your resurrection power and in your suffering so that I can be like you even when that's really, really hard. This table becomes that picture. It becomes that expression that we get to celebrate together. And it has special meaning. And so often we attach tradition and rituals to the things we do in church and we lose the power and the meaning behind them. So let's not do that. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll share in this meal together.